But it's, it's so good to see all of you. So much has happened in 10 months. I don't know if you've looked around the room, but some people have had babies since the last time we saw them. I don't know if you guys knew that Sam and Michael were going to have a baby, but surprise! <laughs> and so we're, we're very excited for that. We're very excited for Amy as well. Um, so I hope that you can go around and congratulate the new parents. Uh, we want to definitely congratulate the new married couples. Congratulations to all of you who made it through preparing a COVID wedding. What a crazy time that must have been. Um, but hopefully we're, we're entering back into some sense of a normal life as, um, as, as the government has made really good, uh, really good decisions. Um, yeah, I'd also thank you for bearing with us through the 10 months of live streaming. I know there were a few times where the uh, equipment wasn't working properly. Like we would get messages that the audio isn't working or uh, like something has happened. It was all Jinha's fault. Uh, <laughs> and she can't defend herself otherwise. And so... <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's, it's very good to see you. Um, 2020 was a difficult year, and um, at the end of 2020, I found myself looking forward to holidays. I don't know if you can relate to that. And I was really hoping that the holidays would help me get over 2020. I thought unplugging from work and spending time in a new environment would put my mind at ease. And today's sermon is on this uh, the, the results of these reflections of being in holiday mode and just looking forward to uh, resting, really. Here's some pictures. That's Micah as he's about to get onto the crazy coaster. This is uh, Joshua and I. You can tell who the photographer is. I just want to say right up front, I'm so sorry, Jen. Ha, I couldn't find a picture of you during our holidays, but I did find a family photo of us riding, riding bicycles. So next time, I promise I will be a photographer. I'll be a good photographer. Well, what happened was we went through our holiday season, but I found myself unable to mentally, emotionally, and spiritually reset. I was so glad that 2020 was over. Um, you know, I, I just kind of wanted to say goodbye to 2020. See ya. So glad you are done. Um, and at the same time, I wasn't quite ready for 2021. Like, wait, can you just wait for one month and then we'll start? And of course, that didn't happen. I needed something more to help me to get through the beginning of the year. I've been reading through this book by Marjorie Thompson. It's entitled Soul Feast. There's a chapter called Reclaiming Sabbath Time, and there are many great insights from this sermon um, that are from this book. And uh, these ideas are helping me develop some resilience, and I hope that they're useful to you as well. Now, at the end of Matthew chapter 11... And also at the beginning of chapter 12, the author of Matthew highlights Jesus' teachings of the Sabbath. And I want to read this passage for you. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And for the sake of some context, here's the next bit of text um, that just talks about Jesus and his interaction with the Pharisees in the Sabbath. So this teaching of Sabbath keeping would have challenged the hearers of Jesus' day, mainly because the understanding of Sabbath revolved around this idea of abstaining from work. So the whole essence of Sabbath is to not work. And yet here, Jesus turns this idea on his head by saying, 
take my yoke upon you. Now, this farming metaphor communicates that by engaging in a specific type of work, we find rest. Not just physical rest, but rest for your soul. That deep rest that calms the innermost part of who you are. This kind of work cures burnout, stress, and frustration. There's a kind of work that leads us to the preservation of life and breathes life into those that are around us. One cannot enter into this kind of work by simply changing one's activities. I'm not talking about humanitarian work or church work because you can burn out and become self-centered in even the holiest of, type, uh, holiest of activities. In order to enter, oops, in order to enter into the work that Jesus is talking about, one needs to step towards Christ, giving, time, giving him, making time with him a priority, taking on his burdens, and engaging in whatever work he wants done. I'll explore this statement in hopes that this metaphor becomes a bit more applicable. So here's that first bit, stepping towards Christ. Jesus says to take his yoke upon us and join ourselves to him. So Sabbath points to God as a creator, as a being with personhood. He's not just this essence or this detached being. It says that God is creator with personhood. If he as creator exists, then we are compelled to know him and his will. In the Ten Commandments, or in the Decalogue, the Fourth Commandment says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you will labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you will not do any work, you nor your son nor your daughter nor your manservant nor your maidservant nor your cattle nor the stranger that is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. It's a very comprehensive list of people who shouldn't work, right? Now in many ancient traditions, there are origin stories of deity. And in contrast to those traditions, God in the creation account is introduced differently. He simply is, and we find him in Genesis creating. Now, the language throughout the creation story is intentional and potent with meaning. For example, on the fourth day of creation, God creates the sun and the moon. Now, the Hebrew words for sun and moon are not mentioned. Instead, they are called greater light and lesser light. So why does God throw shade at the sun and moon? In Egyptian, Babylonian, and Assyrian tradition, the sun is the greatest deity. So like, for example, in Egyptian um, tradition, Ra is the greatest deity. And uh, Marduk is the Babylonian deity. Uh, for, for the sun, God's name is Marduk. And the Assyrian, God's name, I don't know. So I kind of dug myself into a hole there. Now, there's a, there's a Hebrew scholar by the name of Jacques Ducan. And he makes the point that the author of Genesis flippantly refers to the sun and moon as greater and lesser lights to show that the sun and moon are only what they are because the creator calls them into existence. The creation story highlights that Yahweh, 
the God of Scripture is creator and therefore greater than the deity of the surrounding nations. Now, interesting, interestingly, Dukan also says that Genesis 1 and 2, they were never meant to combat the theory of evolution, as that idea didn't even exist. See, the purpose of the Genesis account was meant to bring our attention or to bring the attention of the reader to the creator more than it is to explain the minute details of how creation happened. Now, that doesn't mean that a six-day literal creation didn't happen. For me, it just simply alleviates the need to use Genesis 1 to respond to evolution. I think there are plenty of arguments that point us towards creation and a creator. So not only does the Bible introduce God as one who creates, it introduces God as someone who ceases from creating. So Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 to 3 And so the heavens and the earth were completed and all their heavenly lights. By the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, and so forth and so on. Now, Sigvi Tonstead says that the cessation and completion of creation are markers of God's personhood. French theologian Jacques Ellul writes on this idea. He says that a mere causal function does not have the means to stop a process. So a cause cannot cease to be a cause without ceasing. It must produce its effects to infinity. So therefore, God is not a cause. Then for we are told that he decides to rest. And let me try and illustrate this way because that was a lot of wordy jargon. Hello? Oh. (laughs) So what the French theologian is saying is that when something causes a chain reaction, all things consistent, the effect is infinite. So if, some, if, it, if something causes a chain reaction, it'll just keep going on and on and on and on and on. Now, I can only do this illustration once. Instead, uh, that's okay. I can only do this illustration once, so bear with me. So something causes a chain reaction, right? And it just, it will not stop. Let's say that chain lasted for infinity. It would never stop. I can't, yeah, I would love to do it again. It's going to take me like 30 seconds to load the thing and then do it again, so I'm sorry. I thought about it, but. uh. So the difference between cause and a person is that a person can stop. The creator is not a cause in that God ceases and rests. Therefore, he is a being with personhood. And so the Sabbath gives us an opportunity to interact with that being and to build a trusting relationship with that being. See, power and sovereignty are attributes of God. But from God's side, it's not power that is projected most forcefully in the institution of the seventh day, but a priority on relationship. In Mark chapter 2, verse 27, Jesus says, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. See, God creating everything 
and then ceasing suggests that the seventh day speaks as much about the value of human beings to God. God ceases from working in order to enjoy the company of the person that God has created. And this, in turn, reinforces the purpose and identity of his creation. So here's the second part of that statement. Making God, making time with Christ a priority. See, priority must be given in order for rest to happen, according to the text. The yoke must be put on before rest takes place. The Sabbath is given priority throughout the Bible. The fourth commandment in the Decalogue states to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. But the theologian Karl Barth makes an interesting observation that the seventh day should not come to an end, excuse me, the seventh day should not come at the end of a week of toil and labor for human beings. Its primary purpose is not to offer a measure of respite after days of toil. While it's true that the Sabbath is the seventh day at the end of the week in God's creation, seventh, God's seventh day was man's first. So if you remember the days of creation, man is created on day six and then Sabbath. So from God's perspective, human time began with a day of rest and not a day of work. So along this vein of thinking um, that we're to start the rest rather than work, there's a guy named Tim Hansel. Let me see if I can get this to, to work. Tim Hansel writes about a shift in the way that society views leisure. The early church understood that the word, oh, excuse me, in the Latin, otium sanctum is holy leisure. And the early church understood that otia sanctum lay at the core of human life. So sacred time for the spirit to convert the mind, sacred space for God in the midst of daily life. Such leisure was seen as an essential part of developing our deeper humanity. Now, the opposite word of, uh, of otia sanctum is the Latin word negotium, which translated means non-leisure. So in the Latin, work is secondary. Work is designed, excuse me, work is defined as it relates to leisure. See, our culture has reversed this, defining leisure as non-work. Marjorie Thompson takes this observation and concludes that when priority of work is given, it creates a secular work rhythm that begins with work and moves to vacation. We are driven to achieve and produce, and at the end, we're tired, but we accrue leave entitlements. A common coping mechanism for tiredness is mindless entertainment. I've definitely been there. But this method of coping doesn't cure soul fatigue. I'm not becoming more patient or kind. I don't have a renewed sense of purpose. I'm not becoming a more giving and loving person. This year, vacation didn't cure my soul fatigue. I found myself tired, grumpy, and anxious about the new year. So for family worship one time, we were going around and sharing with each other things that we appreciated about each other. I went first. I said, hey, Micah, I just want to let you know that I really appreciate your energy. I love your joy. I love how helpful you are. I turned to Joshua. 
Joshua, you are so good at knowing how people feel. You're so good at trying to make people around you happy. Next, it was Joshua's turn. He said, Daddy, you're grumpy and angry, but I love you anyway. Wait a second. That, you, you, didn't get, you didn't get what we're supposed to do. You're supposed to say something nice. <laughs> nice about me, not nice about you. By contrast to the secular work rhythm, Thompson states that the sacred rhythm of life begins with Sabbath and moves to vocation. It begins by inviting us to rest in the quiet, replenishing depths of God's presence, promise, and power. And then it moves us toward a grateful, energized response. Now, I get that at the end of the week, the Sabbath is a great way to recharge the batteries. And that's what the Sabbath is for. Use the Sabbath to rest from the week. But also, use the Sabbath for the rest of the week. Because the Sabbath provides rest for the week. I emphasize the importance of prioritizing the Sabbath because the Sabbath prioritizes grace. Eugene Peterson points out that according to the Old Testament, the days start in the evening. He writes, When it is evening, I pray the Lord my soul to keep and drift off into unconsciousness for the next six or eight hours, a state in which I am absolutely non-productive and have no cash value. The Hebrew evening-morning sequence conditions us to the rhythms of grace. We go to sleep, and, God's, and God begins his work. We wake and are called out to participate in God's creative action. But always grace is previous. Uh, excuse me. Yeah, always grace is previous. Grace is primary. We wake into a world we didn't make into a salvation we didn't earn. So according to Peterson... We start the Sabbath not by obedience. We're not holy because we keep the Sabbath. We enter into Sabbath sleeping, doing nothing, and waking up to the reality that God has set aside this time for us because he wants to be with us. See, Sabbath is not only a gift to nurture our relationship with God, but with all human relationships. Peterson also highlights the context for which Sabbath arrived for Israel. See, the Hebrews had gone 400 years without a break, living in slavery, making bricks and pyramids. Then to have suddenly been freed from Egypt, God gives them the Sabbath. A day to remind them that they are more than what they can do. The woman we begin to see, excuse me, the moment we begin to see others, (laughs) Mike, computer auto-corrected that (laughs) the moment we begin to see others in terms of what they can do rather than who they are we mutilate humanity and violate community sabbath keeping is elemental kindness lynn babb contributes to this idea by saying only in stopping really stopping do we teach our hearts and souls that we are loved apart from what we do That is also a typo. Sabbath teaches us we are more than workers. We're more than achievements. We are more than our pay grade. As we spend time in God's presence, that interaction has the power to refresh us, to refine us, and to renew the innermost parts of our lives. 
the more we connect with God, the more we accurately value ourselves and those around us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, Paul writes, For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So here's Paul at the culmination of the love chapter. And many times people quote the love chapter at weddings, and this is kind of a famous passage. But the, the, the most important part of this passage, Paul states his greatest hope and the most valuable truth for him. He says, God, I only know in part what you think and how you feel towards me. But one day I'm going to see you face to face and I'm going to know how you know me, how you see me. See, it's not enough to believe in God. It's, it's not enough to come to a realization that there's a supernatural being. The most important truth that we can come in contact with is seeing ourselves and humanity the way that God sees us. To come in intimate contact with the thoughts and feelings of God. And Paul says in verse 11 that everything else is child's play. Everything else is child's play. The Sabbath is a space for grace so that we can connect with our Creator. So here's the final point. To take on the burdens of Jesus, to take on the work of God. See, the renewing of our hearts doesn't only come from stepping away from our work. The renewing of our hearts comes from stepping towards God's work. Our key passage from Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 29, says to take on God's yoke because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And that's how we find rest for our souls. Jesus promises that his work is better for us. Well, what does that mean? What is God's work? Well, to put simply, God's work is work that is done for God. My point here is not so much that you should all quit your jobs and go into ministry, but rather to invite, uh, but rather to invite you to invite God into your work and see how he changes your work and see how he changes your life. Surrender your work to God and ask him, God, what would it take to make my work your work? Maybe that means slowing down. Maybe that means speeding up. Maybe that, fi- maybe that means finding a new job. Psalm 127 verses 1 and 2 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen watch in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go to bed late, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. There's something powerful happens when you say, God, you take control of my life and teach me to live for you. There are three things that Marjorie Thompson mentions to help kind of reset our focus and in engaging in rest and engaging in God's work. Here are those suggestions. Acknowledge the many ways you are shaped by worldly thinking that makes productivity, achievement, and success the primary source and valuation of your identity. Embrace your deeper desire for the humility of Christ. 
give yourself permission to carve out regular Sabbath time from the massive overcommitment that marks most of modern life. You are aiming for a life of balance, spiritual grounding, and inward peace, emulating the life-giving rhythm Jesus himself embodied. Here's the second tip. Begin to free yourself from culturally embedded patterns of people-pleasing. While it, is most, uh, while it is important to be cooperative, kind, and thoughtful, it is dangerous to need too much to please others. Not only can the views and demands of others be unrealistic, their desires can easily divert us from our inner truth. And finally, give yourself the gift of intentional follow time. For mind and heart, remember that healthy soil needs periodic rest from planting to rebuild its nutrients. As you consider these things, as you enter into rest, may your heart be strengthened. May you be faced. Uh, may you be willing. May you have the strength to face the challenges of 2021. May God bless you as you considered his word. I'm just going to invite the music team back to the front for closing song. Would you join me for prayer? Father God, as we desire to enter into grace, as we desire to be transformed and renewed by that, that power, I just want to pray that you would draw us into your presence, that you would teach us to step away and to spend um, generous moments of time with you. And we pray that as a result that you would bring about um, that, that renewed sense of purpose and identity um, as, a child of, as your child. So we thank you for hearing our prayers. So we ask this in your name. Amen.